What does it look like to do this thing we call church? What does it look like to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ in our relationships? And then last week, as an implication of our mission as a church, which is to be disciples who are growing and making disciples, we looked at what does it look like to be a disciple? How do we identify ourselves primarily? Are we identified primarily as disciples? And if so, what does it look like to live as a disciple? And we learned that It means to deny ourselves, to be like Jesus, deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. And so today, we're going to be the follow-on is what what does it mean to grow and how do we grow as disciples of Jesus Christ? And and obviously, we're not going to cover every aspect of growth because we'd be here for weeks and we're not going to do that. And I don't want to make you be here for weeks to talk about how we grow, but we're going to talk about one important primary aspect of how do we grow as followers of Jesus Christ as his disciples. So let's turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, and as, we, as you turn there, I'll go ahead and have you stand for the reading of God's Word. We do this as a, as a means to outwardly show respect and worship to God for His infallible Word. Let's listen to God's Word today. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Who were zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. God, you have poured out your favor on us. God, you have showed us your grace that has nothing to do with any of our merit, nothing to do with our works. God, thank you for that. Lord, we rest in that. We revel in the fact that you have called us and made us your own and poured out your grace on us when we were dead in our sins. God, I pray that we would be in all of you, in all of your grace, and I pray that your grace would be the primary, not only means, but primary motivator, Lord, and the primary thing we focus on as we seek to grow as your disciples. God, thank you for your grace. May we never lose sight of your grace. Lord, I pray for your enablement this morning for me to preach and for each and every one of us to hear. Lord, we need your grace to hear. We need your grace to learn, to listen, to apply your word, to stay awake and alert to you. So Father, I pray that you would do that. And bless this time in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in this letter to Titus, the apostle Paul, he's, he's been telling that, Titus to do some things, and in this passage, it actually should provoke some questions in us. If, if we say as a church that we are all about God's grace, if the Apostle Paul, he wrote primarily about God's grace, then what's he doing writing about good works? What's he doing writing about godliness? What's he doing writing about putting off and putting on? You should wonder that. You should, you should wrestle with those questions about what do we do with the commands of Scripture? How do we relate to the commands of Scripture? How do we relate to all the imperatives in Scripture that command us to grow in godliness, to grow 
in our sanctification, to pursue him. How do we relate to those things? I thought that Christianity is all about grace. Isn't that what we preach here at the church? Well, yes, it is all about God's grace. But it's not God's grace that leaves us to ourselves. It's God's grace that saves us to something. It's God's grace that that draws us to him and saves us to what he has for us. So the question that should be coming up in your minds is, well, what in the world does all of this work stuff have to do with God's grace? If grace saves us, isn't it antithetical for the scripture to command us to, to grow in godliness, to put off ungodliness, to put on godliness? How do those two things relate? How do we grow as disciples in the commands of God? If you look back a little few verses earlier, look down your Bibles if you have a Bible with you. And I'd encourage you to, by the way, bring your Bibles with you. Typically, we, we're, we're going to be grounded in God's Word. And so we want to encourage you to see what is in God's Word for yourself. And so if you look back at the beginning of Titus 2, he's been giving all kinds of commands to them. He says to Titus that he wants to teach what's in accord with sound doctrine. To teach what is basically sound teaching. What does sound Christian teaching look like? And then he proceeds to a whole bunch of of things of here's what older men are supposed to look like. Here's what younger women are supposed to look like. Here's what older women are supposed to look like. Here's what younger men are supposed to look like. And, and he gives a lot of these kind of pictures of what we're supposed to live like. So you might get the notion, is this all about works and externals? Let's look in, in Titus 2, 2 through 6. He says, older men are to be sober-minded. Okay, so there's a command to be sober-minded, to be dignified. Does that mean it's about externals? He says, be self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what's good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. That the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So is Christianity a, a, a faith of works? Is it all about what we do? Is it, is it all about externals? You should be wondering that. So is Paul saying that we're to pursue growth in godliness by externals? Well, well, no, he's certainly not. And then in verse 11, there's one important word I want to draw your attention to. Look at the very beginning of verse 11. What's that very first word that he says? You can say it out loud. For. For. So all of these imperatives above the Christian life are for something, because of something. Because of something critical, because of something really, I would say, is the most critical for in the Bible. And Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And what he's saying is that grace is the grounds for our growth. Grace is, is the, not only the grounds for our growth, it's, it's the means for our growth. It's, it's the motivation for our growth. It gives us the methods for growth. Our growth is all to be grounded in God's grace. The reason we can pursue all these things in God is because of, for, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And the main idea I want us to see is that grace gives us the means Grace gives us the means, grace gives us the methods, and grace gives us the motives of growth. Don't ever try to grow in the Christian life and pursue growth in the Christian life apart from God's grace. Don't ever leave that little word behind for, for the grace of God. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. You know, this morning on the way here, I passed a lot of trees. It might seem like a little random fact. I I bet you passed a lot of trees on the way here too. 
Maybe you noticed them, maybe you didn't. There's something funny about trees. We don't think about them very much. We can enjoy them. We can appreciate their beauty, their strength. We can see that they provide good things and oxygen and shade and all these good things. We don't think about them a lot and how they grow. You know, I, I think all of us, if we, somebody does ask you, how, do, how does a tree grow? You would probably tell them, well, a, a seed somehow is produced in another tree and that seed falls and it dies and it, it goes into the ground or it lays dormant and then after a freeze then, then the warmth of the sun comes and it heats the seed up and then, and then the seed grows and then it sprouts and then if it's the right soil, the right mix of water and soil and all these other factors, then there's going to be growth. But I would say that it's the means. It's the means that a tree grows by. We, 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 don't, we don't understand really exactly. If I was asking, you, well, okay, fine. Well, how does the seed know when to sprout? You say when it gets warm. Well, is the seed sentient? You know, does the seed think? And you think, well, wait a minute. No, I, I guess not. How is the seed aware of its surroundings? I don't know. How, how does the seed know when to sprout? What, what triggers that growth in the seed? What creates that growth? What causes that growth? So to some degree, it's a mystery. But we do know that there are means that support the growth. And we know when and where, how kind of growth transpires in that sense because we know about the means that a tree grows in. Grace is, is the means in which we grow. To some degree, our growth is a mystery, right? Our growth is a mystery. If I was to ask you, how do you grow in, in Christ? You'd probably give me a list of things. You'd probably say, well, we grow through God's word and that would be accurate. That's one aspect. We grow through the Holy Spirit working in us and that's, that's true. The Holy Spirit needs to work that in us. He causes growth. Well, we grow through hardships because I think all of us, if we've endured um, the li- this life for very long, we probably had hardships and difficulties and we've encountered trials and that trials just kind of act like weights and they they allow us to build muscle. They're painful, they're hard, but they allow us to build muscle. And so we grow not just through God's word and through trials. We grow through the Holy Spirit. And then we, we grow as we pursue growth. And then we grow through other people helping us and teaching us and training us. But in all those things, we, we can say, okay, well, those are kind of the, some of the means. But I would say the primary means of growth is actually God's grace. And that's what Paul's getting at here. The primary means of growth is grace. Grace, that's the first objective truth we're going to look at. Grace gives us the means of growth. Grace gives us the means of growth. Look at that. It says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. If, If you did not have salvation brought to you by God's grace, it would not be possible to grow in the first place. I know it's kind of juvenile to say, but if, if you, who were dead in your sins... Scripture says that we were dead in our sins. We were buried in our trespasses. And, and I don't like to think of, hey, we were just across the street in a marked grave and we were buried over there and somebody could easily find our grave. So no, we were buried over in our sins. We were covered over in our trespasses. We were so dead that we were, we were lost. It was like we were covered over in a landslide of sin. And God, in his grace, sought us out, dug us out, made us alive in him so that we could even hear his grace to begin with. He made it so that we could even hear his grace to begin with by his grace making us alive. He enabled us to hear the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. And then as we heard the good news, somehow he enabled us to respond to him. And then in that, we don't know exactly how that works or transpires, but God makes us alive in a new creation in him. His grace is the very means by which we grow. 
I think as Christians, we can so often forget the fact that it's a miracle that we're even here at all. It's a miracle that we're alive. It's a miracle that we are here gathered together as a church, hearing and wanting to hear about God. Because once we were going our own way, and yet God rescued us by his grace. And grace has appeared. He says, bringing salvation. What has he saved us from? He saved us from God's wrath that we deserved. An eternity of God's wrath. What has he saved us from? He saved us from ourselves. He saved us from our own sins. He saved us from condemnation, from guilt. He saved us in every way. God's made us new and made us alive. It's the means of growth. It's not on the basis of anything we've done either. It's all by grace. Paul's been very clear all throughout all of his epistles. And in the book of Romans, we, we saw very in depth that, that really grace is all of God and nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with our works. We don't bring it. God brings salvation. It's solely on the basis of his grace. But how does grace appear? He says grace has appeared. You know, when I was a young boy, I used to like to watch Superman, and it was kind of goofy because it was all these 50s and 60s reruns, but I used to watch Superman, and then I used to watch this Wonder Woman show, which was also goofy because for some reason she was visible in this invisible jet flying through the air so you see her sitting. And I'm not sure what that was all about. Um, that, that's got nothing to do with the sermon either, but I was enamored with, with them because there were these superhuman people who came seemingly out of nowhere to rescue a humanity from their troubles, and they were able to rescue, and they came like heroes. And I think we all love the idea of a hero, someone to rescue us. And that's the, the kind of way that Paul puts it here. And he says, the grace of God has appeared. And, and he's not talking about a thing. He's not talking about an it or a force. I, I'd like to discourage us from ever thinking of grace as a force. Grace isn't a force. It's not a thing. It's not an it. The grace of God has appeared. How did the grace of God appear? As Jesus Christ. The grace of God appeared. Jesus Christ appeared. The embodiment of God's grace. How do I know that? Well, look down at verse 13. He talks again about the second appearing of grace that we're looking forward to, the return of Jesus Christ. We long for that appearing, but now the grace of God has appeared. Jesus Christ himself in person has appeared. We were once dead. God made us alive. We've been saved and made new by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. As you trust in and believe in Jesus Christ. And he brings salvation. That's the means of growth. But the second important truth we're going to see is that, that grace also gives us the methods of growth. Grace gives us the methods of growth. And we're going to see that in verse 12. Grace gives us the method of growth. He says, training us. What is grace of God? Jesus has appeared. And he does what? Grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The grace of God trains us. It's not a result of our works, but it's, it's meant to result in work. Grace is not a result of work, but grace is meant to result in work. Did you catch that? Grace is not a result of our work, but grace is meant to enable us to work. Once you weren't able to do any work, you were, you were completely unable to please God in any way, and yet grace enables us now to please God to do the works that he's made us for to begin with. In the beginning, God called Adam into the garden, and he says, I want you to go be fruitful and multiply. I want, you to, I want you to replicate my design in the rest of the world. I want you to carry out my purpose. I want you to show my image in the rest of the world. I want you to show my creativity in all that you do. I want you to carry out my purposes, but we were hindered from doing that. Now grace enables us to actually do what God's called us to do. 
Grace gives us the methods of growth. And there's a way that we grow as believers that Paul talks about here. And grace trains us that way. You know, I was thinking through, you know, my children want to do different things in their careers, and, and I'm just praying that there's some way that they're going to be able to do that because, you know, as a pastor, we don't have money set aside for college, and we're trying to figure out, strategize ways to creatively make that happen. But I was thinking through, you know, what if, what if we wanted to be a doctor? What if I wanted to be a doctor one day, and I was in school, though, and I didn't have the grades to support that? What if I was, you know, didn't have the money to go to school? But imagine then the dean of the medical school comes to you and he says, you know, I know you don't have the money and I know your grades aren't so great right now because you just finished high school and, you know, I, I, I know that you really can't even afford college, but you know what? We're going to actually support you in college. We're going to pay for your college. And not only that, we've pre-accepted you into med school so that when you get here, you have a place. And, you know, we believe that you're going to be motivated because we think you're going to make a good doctor. I think you'd be challenged and encouraged. It'd be very encouraging if somebody came and offered to pay for all of your college, if somebody offered not only to pay for your college, but to accept you not on the basis of your merit, but accept you in because of, of what they saw and that they were going to pay your way through medical school as well. I think you'd be encouraged to work hard. I think you'd want to, not, not because you had to, but I think you'd say, hey, out of gratitude, I'm going to apply myself. I'm going to be the best undergrad student, and I'm going to be the best, best student in med school because I've been given so much grace, because I've been given so much, I don't want to waste it. God sought us personally. He chose us. He called us. And because of the great cost that Jesus bore, God's, his grace comes freely to us, Even if it's not free, it comes freely to us. There's a payment made, but it's the payment of Jesus. And it comes freely to us, and he says, I'm now going to enable you to actually live out the purposes for which I've called you. I'm going to enable you to do what I'm calling you to do. I'm going to make a way where you previously had no way. And that's the first way that grace gives us the methods of growth. It's relying on him, and it's out of a gratitude for him that we begin to grow. It's out of a gratitude for his grace that we begin to grow. We saw last week what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and follow Jesus. It means to deny ourselves like Jesus denied himself. It's to take up our cross like Jesus took up his cross and to follow him. But what did Jesus do? He, he denied himself. What did he deny himself of? He denied himself of, of all the things that, that were ungodly in this world. He denied himself of all of the desires of this world, living for what the world lives for. He denied himself all those things. And so Paul, he's kind of putting it in a different way this morning. And he says, I want you to listen to the grace of God. Let the grace of God train you so that you can renounce. Renounce or deny yourself. Everything has to do with ungodliness. Renounce ungodliness. Renounce Renounce not only ungodliness, but renounce those worldly desires, those worldly passions. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for us, and it trains us to renounce what has to do with ungodliness and to renounce those worldly desires. You know, I was reading recently about a story in Southern California one of the places that I've always dreamed would be a nice place to live. But as I was reading, I was thinking, there's certain places in California I don't want to live. One of those is on the side of a hill. 
Southern California doesn't get a ton of rain, but when they do, they have severe mudslides sometimes, and, and often those are unexpected. And so in this account I was reading, this, this family, they had, like many others, they built their house on the side of this hill. And one winter, as they were asleep in their beds, there was torrential rains, and the whole entire side of the hill, it swept down, and it took out the room where their baby was sleeping. And their baby was swept away carried away in the mud, carried away in the grime. And, and, and they woke up in the middle of the night realizing half of their house was now gone. Somehow they were safe and secure and they frantically looked for the baby. They looked everywhere. They, they, they couldn't find their baby. They didn't know where the baby was. They looked at all amongst the rubble and the ruins all the way down the hillside. And then one of the rescuers, after several hours, one of the other rescuers at the bottom of the hill, far away from where the baby originally lay, he saw a wiggling blob of mud. And he picks up this wiggling blob of mud, and it was the baby, completely unharmed. And so he brought the baby to the mother and put the baby in the mother's arms. And you know what the first thing the mother did was the mother embraced the baby, but then she wiped it clean. She wiped the baby completely clean. She got it out of the mud, she made it clean, and then let me tell you, I I bet that that mother never wanted to put the baby in mud again. You know, I bet she never wanted to live anywhere near where that mudslide occurred or or near where something like that could happen again. God has rescued us. He has scooped us up. He has made us clean. So how in the world would we think that it's okay to go back into the mud, go back into danger? Yes, sometimes we, we do that, and God says, no, the grace of God is meant to train us. It's meant to train us to renounce ungodliness. Renounce anything that has to do with the mud, the muck, the mire that he saved us out of. How can we fool around and dabble with the filth that Jesus gave his life to rescue us from? If we understand grace, it trains us to renounce ungodliness. What does is, what is growth of the disciple of Jesus Christ look like? It looks like increasingly understanding what is ungodly in our life and renouncing it. But that requires some thought. That requires some effort. It doesn't just happen. Grace trains us to be aware of what ungodliness looks like to begin with as we see the face of God and Jesus Christ. And then it trains us to say, hey, we need to think about what is not like God. And now let's renounce those things in our lives because of God's grace. It's not about a list. It's not about, okay, we need to conform to a certain set of rules of right and wrong, and and there's a certain list that all Christians should keep. No, it's saying, okay, Lord, I want to be like you, and because you've saved me to be like you, and you've made me a new creation, and you've you've given me new life, now I want to figure out what does it look like to be godly? Well, at first it starts off, Paul says, it trains us to renounce all ungodliness. But that, that should make us think, what is ungodly in my life? What's ungodly in my life? Well, any, any practice or habit or, or way of behaving that has this not in keeping with God's character and his nature. So think about it for a minute. What, what's ungodly in my life that I need to renounce? Grace should be training us to renounce those things. Let's not become complacent. Grace is meant to train us. It's, and if you think about training, it's an active word. People are right now training for the Olympics. They are training. They're working hard. Why? Because they're in the Olympics. They're already accepted there. And so now they're training so that they can do what they do best in the Olympics. Grace is meant to train us to renounce ungodliness. What what things are ungodly in your life? Is there any ungodly way of thinking or acting or speaking? 
Grace is meant to train us to renounce those things. Any anger, any bitterness, any resentment, any hatred, any jealousy, any selfish ambition, any laziness, any apathy, any sexual immorality, anything you're indulging in that's not godly. The grace of God's meant to train us to renounce those things. If you want to grow as a disciple, you need to begin by looking at God's grace and renouncing, renouncing what's ungodly. You know, I think that God right now in his grace is probably already making many of you aware of an area that's not godly in your life. In his grace, he's giving you his favor. If, if conviction is a gift, a favor of God, a grace of God, then if you experience conviction this morning, that is the grace, the goodness of God to rescue you from being trapped in your sins and ungodliness. By his grace, he then will give us the ability to renounce that ungodliness, to say no to it. You know, when Isaiah saw the holiness of God in Isaiah 6, he sees the holiness of God, and God is high and lifted up, and he's exalted, and, and the, the train of God's robe, the, the robe fills the whole temple. God is so majestic, so glorious, so big, he fills the whole temple. What was Isaiah's response? Anybody remember what Isaiah's response was? He said, woe is me. Woe is me, I'm, I'm, an, I'm a man of unclean lips. And you think about that, he was a prophet of God who was to speak God's very words, and he said, I, I can't even speak your words, God, I'm unclean. My very lips are unclean. The sight of God's holiness, the sight of God's goodness revealed his unholiness. That's what grace does for us, actually. God's goodness, his, his grace, it reveals those areas that we need to renounce. You think about Moses when he saw the burning bush, he, he, he fell down. He wanted to hide his face about worldly passions when he says it teaches us, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and to renounce worldly passions. Or you could even look at those two things together. Ungodliness and worldly passions. The ungodliness that stems from or results in worldly passions or results from worldly passions. What are, what are worldly passions? Well, the word passion there can be translated as desire or longing or a craving or a lust. What are you desiring to live for? What is your life all about? What are you craving? What are you seeking in life? If you want to grow as a disciple, it means renouncing not only ungodliness, but looking at what, what, what motivates me. What are the desires that I have that I need to renounce? Ask God to give you his favor, his grace, to see what you're desiring, see what you're wanting, see what you're longing for. You know, every sin that we commit, it, it stems from what we desire in our hearts. Jesus said, of the abundance of the heart, the what? The mouth speaks. It's, it's not outside that defiles the cup. It's, it's what comes from within inside. Every evil desire comes from within inside. So we say, okay, well, how does God, how does your grace train me? He says, my grace trains you by renouncing ungodliness, and then I want you to do some work. Thinking about what motivates you that's not a godly desire. What's a worldly desire? Grace is meant to train us so that we long for his kingdom and not the kingdom of the world. And if you're sitting there, ask yourself, is there any desire that I have that's motivating me that's not a godly desire? That doesn't have to do with living for his kingdom. Is there anything I'm desiring or longing for that the world desires? Any, any desire that the world desires? And, and you can think about what's a worldly desire. Well, it might be um, selfish ambition. I'm going to live to make it up the corporate ladder. And... And God says, well, you, you fool, you made up the corporate ladder, but what will, you, what will you do if your life is taken? What will you trade 
your progress for if, if your life is required tonight. Maybe you live for a claim and recognition. Or maybe you're living for comfort or ease. Maybe your passion is to be in control. We need to renounce those things. Maybe you're, you're lusting or longing after relationship, looking for that relationship to fulfill you, thinking that, you know what, my relationship with my spouse or maybe a relationship with a future spouse, spouse you don't even have, or a, a relationship with someone else or a friend, or I'm looking for a relationship to give me my fulfillment. And God says, no, it's a worldly desire. I am your fulfillment. Maybe you're looking for getting rich and looking for lots of possessions to fulfill you. God says, no, you need to renounce those worldly desires. You can't, you cannot serve both God and money. Renounce those things. You know, renounce control, rest in God's control, renounce comfort, live to serve others, renounce looking for recognition, rest in who you are in Jesus, renounce those worldly passions, renounce living for things, and say, God, how do I serve you with my money? Maybe you're desiring to escape. Maybe you're wanting freedom from all responsibilities, and those are worldly desires. God says, no, I, I, I called you to something more valuable, more important than that. My grace has given you wonderful responsibilities, wonderful privileges. If you see the grace of Jesus, it's gonna make you aware of the grossness of your unholiness, and it's gonna make you wanna live for him. We're not just called to renounce and put off, though. We're also called to get up and to live for him. Look at the second part of verse 12, in, in verse B there, in second part there, 12B. It says, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. We're, we're called to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and then we're called to something else. Grace trains us. Grace trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Now, there's some implications in that. To be self-controlled means that you have some kind of control. Now, I don't mean that you, you want to, okay, I live for control, but it means that you have some kind of awareness of how you're living and that you're planning out your life. That you're not just letting your life happen haphazardly, but you are, you're, you're purposeful about your life. You're living in a self-controlled way. Grace trains us to live purposefully. Now, that can sound like, oh my gosh, I don't want to be legalistic, and I'm not going to create these means, and I'm not going to make a plan because many, many plans, that's got to be, that smacks of legalism. I'm just going to let go and let God well, there's no way to be self-controlled. If you're letting go and letting God, you're going to go downhill. He says live self-controlled and live upright. Grace trains us to live upright because he has made us righteous. Because he's made us righteous, if we understand that, he's, he's fundamentally at the core of who we are. God's grace has made us righteous in him. Now we have his righteousness, and so now we can live upright. Grace trains us to want to live upright. I want to live out who God has actually called me to be. He says, I want to live upright. Grace trains us to be self-controlled, to be upright, to live godly lives in this present age. You might need to ask yourself some hard questions. Where am I not self-controlled? You know, the freedom God gives us is is meant for us to, to live like we're free to live for him. Now we're free to live for him. Grace makes us free to live for him. Now we have to ask, are we living for him? Are we living self-controlled lives? Are we living upright? Are we seeing what it means to be upright in the person of Jesus Christ, in the grace of God that's appeared? His grace is meant to train us what it looks like to live upright lives. 
And then what else is his grace meant to do? It's not only meant to train us to live upright, to be self-controlled, but it says to be godly. Well, how, how do you know what it looks like to be godly unless you know who God is? Grace trains us to want to know who God is, this God who saved us. We want to get to know. And so to be godly, it implies that we have a relationship with God. If you want to grow in, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you want to grow in the grace of God, get to know who God is. There's a lot of ways we can do that. We don't have time to go in all those ways, but one of the primary ways we get to know who God is is to be in relationship with him is, is through his word and through prayer. Now, you know, you ask yourself, you know, do, do I know God? Do I have a relationship with him? How is your relationship with God? And I'll say that to make you feel guilty. You know, sometimes when I am working at my desk and I'm deep in the weeds of, of doing my work, and I'm really focused, I don't know about you, but I can get focused doing things and I can forget about everything else. The good thing is when I shut my door, the world goes away. But sometimes I forget to eat. I know it sounds silly. Um, I forget to eat in the middle of the day and it'd be like three o'clock. I'm like, oh my gosh, I haven't eaten anything today. What in the world? And I get really hungry. I'm like, why am I so hungry and cranky and got a headache? Oh, I haven't eaten anything. But you know what? I don't feel guilty about that. I'm just like, gee, what, what do I need to do? I need to, I need to eat. So what do you do when you're hungry? What do you do when you're hungry? Just eat. You just eat. We're not meant to feel guilty about being hungry. We're not meant to say, oh no, I'm hungry. I'm such a bad person. I'm hungry. No, that's ridiculous. Get up and eat. Get something to eat. If you want to be godly, you need to eat. You need to understand. You need to have a relationship with God. You need to eat his word. You need to partake of him. Get to know what does it look like? What is, who is God? You know, don't, don't feel guilty if you've not been pursuing a relationship with God. Just realize, wait a minute, I'm lacking, I'm weak, I'm weary, I'm lacking energy, I'm kind of cranky, I'm hangry, I need to, I need to eat. It's not about guilt-inducing, it's grace induces us to say, hey, God has provided this vast bounty that you can get to know who God is now. So, because of that, get up and go to the table of God's grace and eat. Partake of his grace Pray, ask for him to change you. See who he is in his word. Talk to other people about God. How are you planning? How are you seeking to grow in self-control and uprightness and godliness? There's, in, in scripture, by the way, it would imply a plan. No one, God says, no one, Jesus says, no one, no one goes and builds a house without first considering the cost. To be a disciple of Jesus means that you have to first consider the cost and that it means something. You have to, it requires some things. It means there's going to be some things entailed to build a home. There's, there's some things entailed if you want to grow in the grace of God. You want to grow in Jesus Christ. It's not ungodly to make a plan. Imagine how much more of a compelling example and witness we might be to other people if we were self-controlled, upright, and godly. Now, I'm not talking about the, up, the upright and godliness that's, that's arrogant, the, that's uh, self-superior, that looks down on other people and like, oh, look how godly I am. No, because that's not who Jesus was. Jesus didn't tell everybody, look how godly I am. He just lived it. He was humble. He was gracious. He was kind. He was compassionate. He loved other people. He ministered to them, and they were drawn to him. I want other people to be drawn to Jesus, too. And you know that one of the primary ways people are drawn to Jesus is through his disciples. It's through seeing the grace of God at work in and through his disciples. You know, it's, it's living by the grace of God. It's, we're, we're gonna shine, I love how scripture says, we're gonna shine like stars in the night. 
If, if you display the goodness and the grace of God in your godly, upright, self-controlled living, you're gonna shine like stars in the heavens. Or maybe put it another way, it's, it's like the moon on a, on, a, on a beautiful, cloudless night. I think the 31st is this big super moon that's coming up. And it's the closest, it's apogee, I think is what you call it. It's the closest point that the moon is to the earth. And, and I love those times when there's no clouds out and the moon is so big and so bright but you know what, that brightness of the moon, it's, it doesn't come from itself. It's just a reflection. It's a reflection of the glory of the sun. We're meant to shine in the night like the super moon, like to, to reflect the glory of Jesus Christ, to reflect the grace of God in all that we do. Grace is the means and it's the methods for our growth. But growth as a disciple of Jesus, not just so you can be a better you, is so you can be a minister of his light to other disciples and demonstrate his likeness. Don't you want to live for something greater? Don't you want to live for a purpose that will last eternally? It's the purpose of his grace that has appeared, that brings salvation, that works in and through. We get to participate together with God in the work that he's doing in this earth as he is drawing people to him, as he is showing people his grace, as he is making people alive to his goodness, as he is transforming lives. We get to be a part of that. And grace is the means that we get to be a part of God's work that he's doing by the grace of Jesus Christ. But, you know, God doesn't just give us his grace, he doesn't just give us the example of Jesus Christ, he, he gives us really something to hang on to, a motive, if you will, for living this way. Look in verse 13, what's, what's the motive that will sustain us in living that way? Look down your Bibles in verse 13, he says, the grace of God trains us as we wait, or waiting, look in verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession. Do you know that you have a blessed hope? Do you know you have a blessed hope that's not yet arrived completely? We have the hope of the goodness of Jesus Christ. We have the hope of God's grace. But we still are waiting for the remainder. We're waiting for the blessed hope. We're waiting for his return. We're waiting for the blessed hope. And what is that blessing hope? It's the second coming. It's the return, the appearing of what? He says the glory of Jesus the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is something greater than what we are living for in this world, and it's a blessed hope that's far greater than anything here. We're to live with this motive of we are not living for this kingdom. We are living for his kingdom because why? He will return one day, and when he appears, he will appear in all of his glory, and our great God and Lord, he will bring in, he will usher in our blessed hope. Are you living for that? Are you, can you tell? If someone were to ask you what you're living for, how would you tell them that you're living for your ultimate blessed hope? How could they tell? We're not ultimately living for this life. We're living for the return of the bridegroom. Don't you want to be found ready and dressed when he returns? The reason we're trained by the grace of God in our lives is because we aren't living for this world. 
We're living in such a way that we want to be eagerly waiting. That, that waiting doesn't mean like I'm sitting in a bus stop and I'm halfway falling asleep waiting for the bus to arrive. No, it's, it's this eager anticipation. It's, it's almost this anxious longing. I can't wait for the blessed hope that we have coming. God's grace trains us to live that way. God's grace compels us to live that way. It gives us a picture of the fact that we have an inheritance that is kept in heaven for us, undefiled, unfading, that one day he's going to bring back to us. Grace trains us to look for this blessed hope that is in Jesus. You know, it's what makes it okay for me not to try to recreate heaven here on earth. You know, if, if we're not living for the blessed hope that's, that's, that's to come, then we're going to be tempted to try to recreate utopia here on earth. We're going to try to recreate the garden in our own way. And, and we're going to live for things that are ungodly and worldly. You know, we're going to live to try to make a name for ourselves, to accumulate money and the nicest things we can because we're not living for the blessed hope. Grace trains us to look for the glorious appearance of Jesus. It's, it's why the Apostle Paul and countless disciples throughout all of the ages were willing to die, to give up everything that they had. Why? Because they knew that so much more was in store. God's grace brings so much more. The author of Hebrews, he tells the heroes of the faith who weren't living for an earthly kingdom, and he writes, he says in Hebrews 11, he says, but as it is, they were looking for a, a better country. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared a city for them. Do you know that God has prepared a city for you? Do you know that he's prepared a better country for you? That his grace has made a way, his grace has opened the way so that now not only can you draw near to him, but he will return and then you will live in his kingdom one day. Grace trains us to not want to live for this kingdom. That's what Paul's saying. It gives us a motive for that. And then he was, grace was given to redeem us. Look down at verse 14. It says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness isn't that good news? The grace of God has redeemed you from lawlessness, meaning that you don't have to be stuck in living apart from God. You don't have to be stuck living lawlessly. He gave himself for a purpose, not just to redeem you from lawlessness, but look at the second part. It says to purify for himself so that we can actually be pure. You, you can actually be found in him not having a righteousness of your own, but having his righteousness, and then he will enable you to actually live righteously? How cool is that? He says he, he gave himself to redeem us, to buy us back, to purchase us. We, we took communion this morning, and communion is really us reflecting on the fact that Jesus gave his life to purchase us, to redeem us, to buy us back. He gave his very life, he gave his very blood to ransom us, that we were doomed to lawlessness and now we don't have to live in lawlessness. We don't have to be impure. We can, we, he gave himself to purify us. You know, the more I see my wife's love for me on a continual basis, even when I'm a jerk, the more it makes me want to love her. You know, sometimes, I know this might be a shock to you, but sometimes I'm not the easiest guy to live with. Sometimes, I'm not the perfect person at home that I preach that I want to be. I would say most of the time. Most of the time, I, I, my 
my life falls far short of my desire to live for God. But you know what compels me at home is my wife's example. She continues to love me. She continues to be kind. She continues to serve. Now she's not perfect, but she's the closest thing I've seen. You know, the more she loves me, the more I hate any distance between us, the more I want to be close to her and I don't want anything to come between us. If you see that in a pale way, I want you to think about Jesus' love for you. He he calls himself the groom. You're the bride. You're his precious possession. You're his precious bride. He, He loves you even when you're a jerk and your desire is not what you live out. When you don't live up to your own expectations, when you don't live up to how you're supposed to be. He loves you and pursues you with an undying love and he has died to redeem you, to set you free from lawlessness, to purify for himself a people. Now look at this, it says for his own possession. Now, now that word there, we kind of lose a little bit of it in English, but his own treasure is really what that is. His, his own possession in the sense of a treasure. You are treasured by God. That's meant to motivate you. Do you know that? Do you know that if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, not only have you been bought back and redeemed, but you are his treasure. You're his precious possession. You know, how many of you think, you know, when somebody asks you who you really are and you're like, I'm God's treasure. (laughs) We should think of ourselves that way. Not because you are so special on your own or you were a treasure before he purchased you. No, he died to purchase you and make you a treasure. And now you know what? You are his treasure. You're his possession. You're his most treasured possession. That's almost scandalous. It is scandalous. You're his treasured possession. He died to make you his own possession, to make you his. You were so, he, he saw you as so worth dying for, not because you had any worth in yourself, but because he wanted to make you his treasure. He makes you his own possession. Do you know that? Do you live in the good of that? Does that motivate you that God treasures me? I'm his possession. Not because I I was a treasure before, but because he died to make me a treasure, to make me pure like, like gold refined in a fire. Are you living like you belong to Jesus? Are you living like he owns you? Do you delight in being his treasure? You know, his ownership of us, it's evident in our lives, in our decision-making, what we're seeking to do as we live for him. The question is, can, can you tell? Is his ownership evident in your life? Are you seeking to live for him? Are you aware that your entire life belongs to him, that you are his treasure? You know, the, the question in the New Testament when it comes to our abilities, our gifts, our talents, our possessions, it, it's not, Lord, okay, how much now can I keep to myself? In the Old Testament, there were rules and regulations about how much we should give and what we should do and what that sh- sacrifice should look like and then all of these rules and regulations. In the New Testament, it's not that at all. He flips it on his head and it's like, no, I own you completely. Now the question for us as believers is not, Lord, how much do I give? It's, Lord, how much, how much do I keep? What do you allow me to do? with what you've given, what, what would you have me do? It's all yours, Lord, I'm yours. The grace of his, of his costly purchase of us, it's meant to train us, it's meant to motivate us. And then he says what it's motivating us for, zealous for good works. 
not to earn any of God's favor. Listen, grace comes despite works, but grace is so that we might do his good works. He gave Adam work to do. You know, work wasn't part of the curse. Hardship in work is part of the curse, but work wasn't part of the curse. It's a glorious privilege to have work that is worthwhile, work that means something, work that has value to God. And he says, now, I've saved you by my grace, nothing to do with your works, and so now I'm actually calling you to do works that have meaning and lasting value. I want you to be zealous for those things, to to burn with zeal. Are you? Are you desirous for the kind of works that display God's grace, that show off God's grace, that magnify who he is, his image, his character, his nature? Not because we earn it, but because he promises a reward. And then you know what? We get to take that reward and lay it at his feet and say, thank you, God, it's all of your grace. May we seek to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives, enabled, inspired, empowered by his grace. Let's hate the mud, the muck that he saved us out of. Let's hate the, the ungodliness in our lives. Let's consider Jesus Look to his grace, not grow weary as we seek to grow in his grace, zealously seeking to live like Jesus, to magnify his grace. As we close, why don't you ask yourself some questions. Is there any ungodliness in my life that God's calling me to renounce in light of his grace? Maybe there's anger or bitterness, drunkenness, rebellion, disrespect, resentment, slander, gossip, stinginess, lying, pornography. You can make a whole list. Whatever it might be, any worldly passions, desires, control me, any greed, any desire for control, laziness, any lust, selfish ambition, pride, self-justification, any idol controlling me instead of being controlled by God's grace. Is anywhere I've been ignoring the grace of God and his conviction that he gives me? Is God, how is God calling me to, to do works that magnify his grace? How's God gifted me that I can display his grace? You know, am I pursuing my, my liberties to love others and honor God or am I doing that for myself? And then the question for all of us is, are, are you willing to act now? Are you willing to renounce now? There's a call and it's, it's an immediate sense. It, grace trains us to renounce. Grace trains us to, to pursue him, to live for what matters most. I love a, a, an illustration that a guy named Kent Hughes and Brian Chapel they shared about, about this passage. They said the Puritans used to use the image of a live oak. We've got live oaks here in the south. So they used to use the image of a live oak, a variety of trees whose leaves, though dead, stuck to their branches all throughout the winter. Now, I didn't know that, actually. They, the leaves, they look like they're alive. They're actually no longer living. They're dormant. They're, they're stuck to the to the branches, but the leaves fall off. And he says, what eventually forced the leaves from the tree was not the abuse of the cold or the beating of the wind, but the new life of springtime, welling up within the branches, forcing out whatever was dead. In a similar way, though we are God's people, there yet cling to us affections for evil, we must confess. There's new life within us. He says these evil affections are replaced by an eagerness for good only as an apprehension of Christ's grace. The life of Jesus Christ dwells within us and ultimately drives out the old affections with a new life that's profound love for him and by his grace. Amen? Let's be like a live oak. Let's meditate on God's grace as 
is the means and the method and the motive by which we grow. Let's pray. And then after we pray, go to the band, come up and we'll sing.